A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. How are you doing? Odd times, isn't it? You're tuning into an F1 podcast when there's no F1 for a while. Uh, We wish we could bring you a race preview today, but we can't, which is why we appreciate that you've still tuned in and we can still learn something today. We've got some great tech chat lined up with uh, the return of our most popular guest panellist to date, Gemma Hatton from Racecar Engineering Magazine. And Matt and I will bring you all the latest F1 news and debates as normal. Just a personal note from me, if you're you're listening to the sound of my voice, you know, we're all entering various stages of lockdown and I've struggled today and I just want you to know that if you're struggling you're not alone this is weird not just from an f1 point of view just from a life point of view this is weird it's all weird and it sucks and loads of people are getting to the point where they've made everything kind of just hold together somehow we've made all the changes we've set up all the schoolwork we've bought all the dvds and the games were set but then it's starting to kind of sink in And everyone is slowly either getting to the point, has had the point, or will get to the point where the anger and frustration just starts to seep out. My wife has had it. We've had lots of tears there. I spoke to my brother-in-law yesterday, who spent his whole adult life as a builder and is now a homeschool teacher. And he just lost it with me over video chat. And then I had my own personal moment, which is why I'm talking about it today. I was not pleasant to be around this morning. The anger and frustration seeped out. I snapped at the children. I felt angry and lost and hard done by. And if you're feeling that way too, I just wanted you to know that you're not alone and that I felt that too. Um, It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel sad. This sucks. I miss F1. 
I missed that outside. Uh, and so you're not alone. Uh, but there's, there's, there's only so much we can do. Uh, there's so much we can't control. And what we can do is focus on what we can control. And what I can control is making content. So I'm going to do that. Content I enjoy, and hopefully you will too. And making content is always easier when I'm joined by Matt to rumpets. Matt, people like it when I do that. They like it when I do the true rumpets bit. That's their favorite. No one ever emails me to say, stop doing it. It's annoying. Just because I talked to you in person. No, it is. It's a thing. I don't even know why you started doing it, but it has become what, shall we say, a signature move of our podcast. It's simply because I could remember the first bit, Trump, that was easy because I'm a big fan of Home Alone 2, but I can never remember the second bit. So I held that note until it popped back into my head. How are you, Matt? I think, like you, it's it's a mixed bag. You know, we, we've had our ups and our downs here at the household. But as I was discussing with my daughter, who's almost three-day weekend got ruined by schoolwork mere moments before she was about to embark on it, that a lot of what happens is just our expectations for things get defeated by reality. And being able to adjust and move on is really always in your own best interest long term. It's hard. You might need to find room and shout, hit some pillows, you know, whatever it is, reach out. You need a safety valve in times like this where people you can go to and just say, look, this is occasionally just a bit too much. And so if we are that for you, then I am thinking this is an excellent thing. Come to the chat room, come to Twitter, tell us how you're feeling, send us a DM if you don't want to be public about it. But yeah. Thanks for being part of our community. Thanks for being listeners to Missed Apex podcast. When the F1 season ends, we have a moment of grief that there's no more races and we reset, we gather ourselves up and we produce the best F1 week content we can all through the winter. Just means we've got to do it twice in a row now and we're looking forward to it. We're an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves, even though she now shares this shed with me and I hate it and it's stupid. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute when there is one. We might be wrong, but we're first. All right, we are joined today by the most popular panellists we've had join us for a while, like Gemma. Patton, hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Everybody loved your input last time you were on, and like all true experts... You insisted to me that it wasn't all that interesting at all. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> as long as people enjoyed it, then that's good and learn something, then I'm good with that. Uh, the problem is, I think with your experience is for you for a long time, it was very work a day, which is that, you know, your day to day job was bringing tires to F1 teams and then helping Mana F1, you know, do their job. So it's, you know, for, some, for someone else to put them in themselves in that position is to have someone suddenly be fascinated with their Excel spreadsheet. And they're like, no, please tell us about the macros in that spreadsheet. Yeah. And I think when you're part of that sort of F1 bubble actually out of the track, you forget how cool it is just to walk into the garage and talk to the drivers and talk to the other engineers and be looking at data. And I think that's, um, yeah, you take that for granted when you're in there just because it's such an intense environment where you're, you know, you have to deliver. So, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm thinking of a time several years ago when I noticed that every Mercedes power unit swapped out its MGUK simultaneously on a weekend. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I actually, I emailed Bradley Lord about it. I said, yo, what up, dude? Well, not exactly that. That's what he wrote. 
That's exactly what I wrote. And and he wrote back and said, yeah, for, you know, for, uh, for reliability purposes, we've swapped it out. I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. I figured this out. I'm so cool. And he was basically like, this literally happens all the time. Why are you even asking me this question? I'm like, well, yeah, to you, it happens all the time because you know about it, but we never hear about that stuff in fan world here. Yeah. And that's exactly even having been in that world, now speaking to the expert experts in my role at Race Car Engineering Magazine, I'm still learning things and I'm still, my jaw is dropping at some of the engineering achievements they're making. And they look at me and they say, this is old news. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still awesome. <laughs> so it's, it's incredible what they do. I feel like a bit of a fan as well, even though I'm, you know, I've had experience in that world as well. How do you find it walking into the paddock now as a, as a journalist? Obviously, you'll know some faces but do you feel still like an insider? I think for media, you get treated a bit differently and rightly so. Um, I think there's a very elite uh, few journalists who have been going to every single race for years and years and years. And they get to speak to, you know, the likes of Toto Wolf and, you know, all of the technical people and team principals relatively easily. Um, I think as a journalist, still, even though, my face is known from the mechanics and the team point of view. My face isn't quite as known to the PR people. So the last year or so, I've been having to say, hello, this is me. By the way, I worked with that mechanic over there. Um, but having been at Manor, the fact they've spread into every other race team means that I know somebody in all of the race teams, which is really interesting. So, Without naming a name, how, how wide does your friendship circle you know, what's like the most important rank of F1 person who you would say is like a bud where you could WhatsApp and go, sup, fella, what's up with the hydraulics on the what's it, what's it? Uh, probably a couple of the guys at Manor um, who are now in um, other, yeah, other race teams who I can just go, oh, so what's this? And they uh, go, don't tell anyone but this. And then I can ask the right questions to the experts when I do have my interview slots. So that works quite nicely. Oh, how did how do interview slots work? Like, do you get allocated a thing, or do you have? I always imagine like it's a bit of a, a scrum. And whenever I've gone to cover any press events uh, very early on for this project and the Formula E project before it, when I've been a one man band, I had to send myself out as the journalist, and I would be so shy to like go and grab people and and go and and get them for an interview. I remember I was stood a meter away from uh, 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 Prost. I've forgotten his first name now. Uh, N- Nicholas Prost. And I was a meter away and I just thought, oh, he's had a busy day. I don't want to bother him. You know, so how, how does it work for, for you guys in the paddock? Um, well, they do have these scheduled media slots um, where all of the press or the print media sort of descend on the, the technical director or whoever they've put up um, and just fire questions at them. Um, if all you're together. Lucky, yeah, all together. Um, if you're lucky, you can, might get a one-on-one slot. But for me and my boss... I'm a rubbish journalist, basically, because I see an engineer running from the garage to, you know, his desk and um, I go, well, he's an engineer. He's really busy. I better not bother him when actually I need <laughs> yes. to be asking him those questions. So being an engineer or having been an engineer in F1, I'm like, I know these guys are really busy. So I just don't butt in and ask the questions. And then my boss is like, so where's our features? <laughs> so it's a difficult balance I'm finding, but I'm learning and I'm getting a bit more bullshit now. So that's good, I suppose. I was thinking my proudest journalistic achievement in Formula E. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Which I've only been to two races, yes, because the Brooklyn ones are like a mile and a half from where I live. 
uh, was two years in a row tracking down the McLaren battery guys and asking them questions that they categorically would either refuse to answer or pretend to not be able to understand and answer in proper engineering speak. So they did not have to deal with me. So really, you're probably not missing out much because that's pretty much what they would do if you ask them a real question. Yeah. And you have to give them a little hint that, you know, you throw in the odd technical term and then they go, okay, this person actually knows, you know, some things. So I can divulge a little bit more information, but not too much. And the best interviews are when you end up having just a technical discussion. There's no question and answer. You're just chatting about engineering. And I think the interviewee enjoys that as well as the interviewer. So that's what the aim that I'm trying to get to with my interviews. And we're getting there. I just tried to throw in the term photon correlation spectroscopy and and see where that lands me. Now, someone who would definitely understand what I was talking about would be Kyle Power. Unfortunately, Kyle is sick today, so we we uh, we all wish him a speedy recovery. I wasn't going to talk about it. No, no, it's private. I shouldn't I shouldn't say what's wrong with him. Uh, no, he wouldn't mind. He he has gout. His fine living has finally caught up with him. He dines no vegetables exclusively on red meats and protein from the sea and port and red wine. So, yeah, so that is why Kyle can't be here. Time to move on. Let's have a a bit of a look at the big dirty news before we do some tech stuff and ask Gemma Hatton what it's like to be part of an F1 team during a race weekend. But first, I've got to play the bumper. Big Dirty News. No, no, I didn't hire an expensive and highly pla- uh, highly paid northern voice actor to do that bumper. That was me. I did that. That was one of my many amazing impressions, Matt. Uh, news. There is some. Uh, what shall we? What shall we talk about? Ooh, wow! I didn't really think about this moment actually happening. Let me see now. It's written down. Okay. He's lying. It's very yes, well prepared. Yeah. Uh, no, I think a lot of people's interest right now is going to be very much on what happens to the drivers whose contracts are up at the end of 2020. And also, at least for me, what's going to happen to all those performance clauses that are normally a part of these contracts? Because right now, we don't even know how many races we're going to run or when they're going to be running. So I kind of felt like it was more simple than that. So I'm looking forward to you telling me how naive I've been if a driver had a contract until the end of 2021, then he still has one till the end of 2021. If his contract was running out this year, the team still have the same decision to make. It's just that the driver has less opportunity to convince them. So I don't know. It feels like a simple thing. What complicates it? Well, I think what would complicate it to me would be the performance clauses. Like uh, we saw for example, and perhaps famously Vettel getting out of his Red Bull contract because of where he finished. Um, I say this, that was my understanding at the time. You're looking at me like you've never heard of this before. But when, when he switched to Ferrari, he did he did less well than Ricardo. And there was a lot of talk at the time that he was actually trying to miss a performance contract that would free him up to move to another team. So all drivers will have these sorts of things, options in their contracts, not running races, will complicate the metrics they use to evaluate them. Well, I, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there are drivers who really have a lot on the line. You, you think Vettel, if he's desperate for a Ferrari contract, would have been looking to hit the ground running? Or, you know, is it to his advantage where he can say, well, 
you've not had a chance to look either way. So you know, the driver market hasn't changed. 2022 is effectively 2021. Just give me an extension. You'd think so. And yet uh, in an interview with, I believe, Sky that I saw written up in F1 Analysis Technico, apparently they have made a renewal offer to Vettel, but for significantly at lower figures. They say lower figures. Redu- at much lower figures. That's re- how they say it. Reduced so, pay for everyone. Yeah. So what's that all about? And how is he going to react to it? We don't know yet. Um, I haven't read any specific information from anyone yet about what's going to be done, but I think you're going to see it be a big focus of speculation the longer we go without actual races. Uh, I suppose, uh, you know, one of the things we've really overlooked for the for the big teams is if they're stuck with these big contracts like Vettel, 40 million a year, and Mercedes are paying out a huge amount per year for, for their drivers, and then they're not generating the same amount of income you know, this really starts to 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 have an effect on whether the teams are going to survive. Now, I'm sure Mercedes could survive if they wanted to. I suppose it's more of a case of will their 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 bosses Daimler look at that and suddenly go, "Do you know what? We we were kind of on the fence about staying in this, and we wanted the F1 team to look after itself, but now we're taking a big loss. This is the time to pull out." Now, I'm not saying that is not from any kind of source. That is just me kind of speculating about. How the teams who have uh, backers and, and shareholders like Renault, for example, where it's different departments, are good, might struggle or face the same amount of pressure that teams like Williams and Haas will face. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up uh, because it has come up that this was going to be very much an evaluation year for Gene Haas as to whether or not he was even going to stay in Formula One. And Brad Newmeyer in the chat brings up the excellent point that our very own Matthew Carter and by our very own, I mean, he occasionally deigns to be on a show with us. No, we claim him. He's ours. He, he is on no other podcasts, so he's ours. Fair enough. Oh, and Mention, sorry, we should it, mention that he's on next week, next Sunday. Ah, well, that's good. That's mm. good to know. Yep. Um, mentioned that if two payments were missed, uh, or at least in, in his driver contracts, uh, and I think he was discussing Raikkonen's leaving, um, that if two payments were missed, uh, people would be free to move to other teams. So it could also be a question of if the team can't pony up the money up front to pay drivers, suddenly people might be have the ability to jump to different teams. Oh, now that is, that is interesting because there are a few one-to-way drivers. So I'd imagine basically both Haas drivers, if offered a contract anywhere else, would go. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo, if one of the big three teams lost one of their drivers or decided to be without one of their drivers, he would be a free agent and go. And then, of course, I think the last one to talk about uh, at the moment in this situation is Ocon. Uh, I don't know what kind of contract he's on at Renault, but dude, you've waited so long. Yeah, it's horrible. He's on a two-year contract, so at least he will get to race. But he spent a whole year out of the sport. He showed up in Australia and had the rug pulled out from under him. And I think much in a similar manner to Kubica, a lot of people have been waiting around to see him back on track. A lot of people really like him. I know a lot of people don't like him. A lot of people do like him uh, because he, like Hamilton, comes from a very middle-class background, and his parents sacrificed a lot to get him where he has gotten. Well, he's not racing against Perez anymore, so I'm back to neutral on Ocon, I've dialed down <laughs> my Ocon hate. Uh, interesting to, to think about uh, the, the 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 margins for smaller teams. Uh, Gemma, did you ever get a 
a feeling at Manor, because you were a team member at Manor, did you ever get a, a sense of just how on the bubble they were uh, financially? Um, I think when we were all made redundant. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty big sign. <laughs> um, uh, but I think actually in a small team, you you take a bit of pride. You know, I think you listen to interviews with all of the smaller teams, you know, the Williams, previously Racing Point, and it's all, we've got no resources, we've got no resources, but it's only when you are part of a team, you're in that, and you see the size of the factory, you see the teams that are working and the departments, which are made up of, you know, 10 or 12 people, as opposed to the bigger teams, which is 20 or 30 people. And I think it's when you take a bit of pride in that because you go, okay, we're racing these guys, we have a car, we've delivered a car, we are improving every race weekend and um, we are half the size that you are. So I think actually that's a bit of a a bit of a selling point of the smaller teams. Okay, well, let's set the scene of your career at Manor. You were a Pirelli Sport tyre engineer and as you explained to us last time, Pirelli assign one engineer to each team. So you were kind yeah. of, you were, you were embedded in with Manor as their tyre engineer and then... You went native and betrayed them, breaking contracts, wrecking relationships and saying, no, I am Mana and always have been. And you got the tattoo of Mana racing on your shoulder. Well, not quite like that. No? Okay, <laughs> but okay. I think, um, I think being, as you said, as a Pirelli engineer, you are embedded in the team. You're in the garage with the team um, during all of the sessions. You get to included in some of the technical briefings, the meetings, the post-session debriefs. And you get to real, really good understanding of, you know, what it's like to be in an F1 team, you know, what the race engineer does, what the performance engineer does. And it's only when I really saw that involvement and that passion and that I realized actually I'd love to be part of a team. And, you know, when they got their point in Austria in 2015, um, you know, it was fantastic and it was handshakes all round. But then I went off to the Pirelli truck and they were all buzzing and you know and you're not quite part of that being a supplier is a fantastic way to get trackside especially when Pirelli is a technical partner to a series rather than just sort of a brake supplier where you're only dealing with a couple of teams but um yeah I've just I just wanted to be part of the team basically and have that passion so having been there and seen all those different roles what uh, from your point of view what did you view as the most challenging role on a team the race engineers, definitely. And and if I'm honest, that's probably what put me off wanting to be a race engineer because they are, I think they are superhuman. Um, you know, they have about 10, maybe more channels buzzing in through their ears. They're the only person that can communicate with the racing driver um, and they're doing a setup. They need to know every single area of the car um, in enough detail to make a change but in in an overview to see how it affects everything else um in terms of the setup and and they have to deal with the whole psychology of the driver and it's yeah i just think they are superhuman well that that last point you made there the psychology of it i think i think matt we tend to think of them as just like the driver's buddy and they're like just like almost communicating to the driver oh toto looks pretty mad mate i'd stick some lap times in we don't really think of them as driving the bus like that well, I, I think engineering the nut behind the wheel is perhaps next to tires the most important thing that you can possibly do. Um, and I was going to say, you've left out the most important skill of 
any race engineer, which is the ability to sound like a mildly hypnotizing ninth grade English teacher while you talk to your driver. That's correct, Lewis. We'll be in soon for tires. That's correct, Lewis. Half of your car is missing. You have to. You have to be, you know, you are the one constant. You know, if you imagine what it's like being in the cockpit of a race car, um, you know, they have to, they need that comforting voice that they're familiar with. And they can tell in the tone if you're panicking or not. You know, it's very much, um, they can see, right, they're on the wrong strategy or they're not going quite fast enough, very much from the tone of the race engineer. They know these people. They spend more time with these people than they do their own families. So I think you have to, as a race engineer, be completely cool, consistent and solid, regardless of what the situation is, just to try and keep your driver in a good headspace, regardless of what's actually going out on track. I couldn't do it, Matt. I couldn't do it because you have to be, you know, so patient. You go, you know, they're, oh, race engineer, you're a jerk and you've got everything wrong. Like, why am I here? You've ruined everything. And you have to say, yeah, you know, it's okay. Just be patient. Uh, we're going to stick to plan A. Except, uh, eventually, I would crack and I'd go, do you know what? If you think it's so easy, I'll drive the car. I've driven a go-kart before. I'll be fine. You try managing all this. Uh, it's almost like having small children, isn't it? It's almost exactly like that. I definitely know what it's like to be a race engineer. So I have to ask. Have either of you seen the Netflix documentary Uppity about Willie T-Ribs? I swear to God, this is germane. So in his last chance to make the Indy 500, his engineer said, oh, I've got a set of magic tires that I that, that were really good. I've oh. had, them in the, had them in the shed all weekend. It's your last chance. I'm putting them on the car. And they're interviewing Willie. And he's like, I could feel straight away there was all this extra grip. And they interview the engineer. He's like, oh, yeah, we do that all the time. We probably took like half a pound of pressure out on one side, and that's what made it work. So, hang on a minute. That was in the film Days of Thunder. So did, did Days of Thunder mirror that? That's amazing. Yeah. That is the exact script of Days of Thunder. Um, I actually I tried it with uh, my son as well on the team intercom because it was cold and it was getting slippery. I said, son, you can push it. We put special tires on, and you can definitely push it. It will hold. It will hold. And he went, no, you didn't. Shut up. I went, oh, okay. Well, you're cleverer than Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder. Uh, we're speaking to Gemma about being part uh, of, a, of a team. I want to set the scene a little bit more because um, this is back in like 2015, 2014, 2015. So it's going back a while. I can't remember that far back. Who were the, who were the manor drivers during that period? So we had um, throughout the, I think it was the 2016 season, we had... Um, Rio Harianto and Pascal yeah. Verline. And then that was the season where, was it halfway through? Um, Esteban Ocon uh, replaced Rio. Um, and yeah, those were our drivers, which was really interesting because they were both Mercedes juniors at the time. And yeah, it was great because they would nudge each other on. But I think there were a couple of mistakes made by one of them just because they were so focused on beating each other to try and make that, you know, jump and impress Mercedes. So I think having such competitive drivers together is really good and it really drives the team on but maybe not when they're both sort of Mercedes drivers. <laughs> is that the season where Harianto lost his funding halfway through the season? Yeah. Yeah and did he not continue or did they let him drive till the end? I can't remember. No he didn't continue. I think I can't remember which race it was but we definitely had um, Esteban was um, racing the, all the races I was there which was the last five or six I think of that season. 
So when you went over to Manor, sorry, I've turned this into an interviewing you, but you've been part of an F1 team, the best job ever. Uh, firstly, you know, is it what it cracked up to be? Like had that had the Manor not shut down, uh, would you would you imagine that you'd have spent a lot longer there? I mean, a lot of engineers. So I, I used to work in defence, and a lot of those guys had the kind of choice to work in motorsport, but chose the the money and glory of sitting behind a, a spreadsheet and CAD drawings. Uh, is it? all that it's cracked up to be should we be as jealous of you as i feel like we should i would say yes i think it's i think to get into f1 is such a long difficult journey you know you are sacrificing your time you know right from college and uni to get your a levels and then in an engineering degree which is really tough you know f1 teams only look at maybe six or seven universities so you've got to make sure you get into those universities you've got to make sure you've got experience there's so many ways and things you have to do to try and impress that f1 team so that when you do get that interview you know you boss it and so that journey therefore makes the experience when you get there because it is such an achievement for anyone involved in formula one and no one really in my opinion ends up there by accident you know you have to deliver if you don't deliver you're out um and i think the beautiful thing about Formula One and motorsport in general in any pit lane really is you're all united. It doesn't matter whether you're the tire engineer or the mechanic or the driver or, you know, on the ranking scale of a team, you're all there to make that car go faster and win races. And so I think that is a, that passion that you just, you just can't get anywhere else. I don't think. Okay. This will be a fun question. And, and, and I'm ignoring all the questions that, that all of your fans have already asked of you. Ask my question. Okay, but you do have to get to them eventually. Yes, I know. But you'll like this question. Was there ever a moment or a time or a thing where you made a mistake and you were like, oh no, that's it? And were you able to successfully cover it up or did you have to come clean about it? What? what, Okay. (laughs) Well done. Good question. Matt, Um, is this because I confessed to my £30,000 error because I was playing... 3D space pinball on a, on a Windows XP machine and failed oh, to... Oh, gosh. I, I, I totally forgot about that. I was thinking <laughs> about the uh, satellite that rolled off the desk and cost like $14 million. Okay, that wasn't me, though. It. I'm just stalling to no, give no. Gemma time to compose herself Thanks. for her story. It, it hasn't helped, yeah. but thanks. I mean, <laughs> appreciate you don't actually have to answer that if there's like nothing or it's too... Um, I, think, but. I think I was very conscientious uh, so that I didn't damage any expensive equipment or anything like that and I think I made a lot of mistakes but I think those are only the ones where you know I was so young in manner I think with manner and a small team you know people see that you're working hard I think there's two things that value you in any motorsport and formula one it's if you're hard working and if you're passionate you don't have to be a genius you know it's if you're willing to learn from your mistakes and then you know hopefully help the team and work really hard so for me you know I'm not a genius I just worked really hard and learned from some really fantastic engineers um so yeah I'd say learning a lot you need to make mistakes to learn and when you do make a mistake you will remember that mistake very well and you'll remember not to make it again um so that's probably the best way to learn um but I can't pinpoint anything where I thought that was it and started packing my bags can I put it a slightly different way what what can go wrong as a as a tire engineer for the team so what is your responsibility over the course of, of a race weekend I, I guess as as simpletons we kind of think of it as Pirelli rock up with a, a trolley full of tires and they put it down and you 
and you put the tires on. What do you really need to do as a tire engineer? Well, again, that role differs slightly whether you're the Pirelli engineer, tire engineer, or the team tire engineer. Let's go team. Um, team. Okay. So throughout the whole weekend, right from Thursday through to Sunday, you have lots of meetings, lots of sort of um, debriefs before and after each session. So just to set the scene, we've hopefully everyone's seen the Netflix documentary, but you see them all with their headsets on and they're all tuning into um, all the guys back at the factory, guys and girls at the factory. And um, if after every session, um, you will have a debrief and there will be obviously the drivers, the engineers, team principals, strategists, aerodynamic guys, vehicle science guys, and they will all run through. Um, everyone will have like a five minute a session of you know what they want to say or the key points um and then everyone knows roughly what's going on and then throughout the rest of the evening everyone has more specific meetings and where they where yeah. i chat about tires for ages with the pirelli tire engineer and the strategist as well um i think during the session it can be i mean i was lucky i wasn't making any of the calls you know for example qualifying when you've got two cars you know especially at short circuits when they're doing short runs you know you've got a lot of runs a lot of tires flying about as the pirelli tire engineer it's extremely stressful making sure you're tracking the sets right um because i don't know if you know you know, all the graphics you see on what color and compound yeah. each guy yeah. uh, each driver's on that all comes from the pirelli engineer with their standing there with the oh. ipad at the back of the garage making sure they're pressing the right buttons so if they've oh, ever shown the I wrong one something wrong? oh here we go we found one <laughs> So, so um when I was Pirelli tire engineer and this was sort of my first or second race so this is my excuse um I had Pascal Verline I think he was on the medium compound the same set of tires throughout the entire race because I didn't select the right um compound when during the pit stops or it didn't sync or something with the iPad and that goes straight from your iPad sitting there in the garage watching the tires go on oh. to uh, FOM and therefore on all of your TV screens so, um, yeah, there we are. I did something wrong. Ah, was it just you that noticed or were the commentators going, oh, Verline's making these tyres last forever? I think Brundle made a comment and watching the replay, I was, I felt very small. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, well, at least we, at least we found, at least we found one. But, you know, are there situations where, you know, they're, they're in uh, Q2, uh, were they still doing the Q2 thing there where whatever tyre you uh, set your best time on in Q2, you had to qualify on? Were they ever like, ah, uh, Hatton, mediums or soft? And you're like, I don't know. I'm eating a bag of cheesy Watsits and I wasn't paying attention. Cheesy Watsits is a good addition to it, an F1 garage. <laughs> it was the first snack that came to my head. And well, I'm lying. It was the second snack. The first snack that came to my head was the recent invention I made, which was rich tea biscuits with Nutella on the top, uh, which I gave to my kids. And they now think I am the king of snacks. And they're correct. It's a completely original concept. But I feel like I've gone off on a tangent. And good, I can't remember I can't remember where we were. So I'm just gonna stop talking until someone else does. Uh, Do you did you ever have to like make a snap call on which tire compounds to use? No, that's all done by the race engineers uh -huh. and that's planned way before. And to be honest, even during the race, it's normally the strategist that makes that call. So throughout the weekend, the team tire engineer is working very closely with the strategist to make sure that the deg curves are or degradation curves are oh. um, accurate. And, uh. you know, the working windows and all of these kind of things 
it's a lot of communication between the tire person and the and the strategy engineer um yeah so that's probably the person I would talk with the most and um, so they would make the call I think one thing sorry just to yeah, one just thing keep going in, keep going was it Brazil in 2000 they replayed the race I think F1 on Facebook a live yes it was the, the one with last, the red flags uh, but there was I can't like, remember what year it was three red flags and I think the safety car came out five times and that was absolute carnage because not only was that the race that decided whether we lost our championship point compared to what well, Sauber gained more championship points and therefore we were 11th in the championship and therefore missed out on all of that prize money funding. So you had all of that pressure riding on you, but um, trying to know the tyres, you know, could you adjust the pressures when everyone came in the pit lane? You know, all of these things, you know, there are rules and there are regulations, but in the pandemonium that was that race, you know, you just end up completely uh, forgetting just the basics. Um, and that's the one where I think Raikkonen was walked backwards, you know, pushed backwards down the pit lane because of all of these rules suddenly in a scenario like that, all these rules that have been written to try and, uh, um, you know, define these situations, they just all go out the window because everyone's just panicking on their tiny little segment of this whole whole race. So that was probably the most intense uh, stressful thing where I had to make a couple of calls and um, obviously it wasn't my fault that we lost to Sauber but uh, yeah there, there was a lot going on in that race. The moment you said that about the regulations in my head I had this image uh, kind of like me on on the show when someone asked a question of barreling through a pdf document from the FIA site to see if I can come up with a definitive answer or if I'm just going to have to guess. Did, is that is that what we're talking about in situations like that? Are the teams, is there someone going like, wait, 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 I've almost got the FIA site to load. Hold on, I'm almost there. Well, normally the race engineers will have a folder with them um, and they will have a quick a quick sort of crib sheet, you know, what to do. And they're usually really hot on the regulations. They know exactly what's happening. But I think what made the um, that race in particular really interesting was we had um, our technical director at the same time, Pat Fry, who was just looking at him and his our chief race engineer were just looking at the points. And he was saying, right, now Ricardo's got a penalty. You know, that drops us down this many places or he's going to be in front of her. So he just spent the whole time. So in amongst this pandemonium of trying to race this car and figure out what was going on, you had this overlying loud voice in your head that was like, we are now 10th in the championship. We are now 11th in the championship. We are now 10th in the championship. And that just adds a whole, you know, layer of pressure. I mean, we needed to know, but um, yeah, that it's another layer of pressure, I think, that is very rarely uh, experienced by the teams because, you know, we only we have 10 teams now rather than 11. Uh, we, we will, I promise, get to some of the, the Slack, uh, Slack group that we have for our patrons. They, they had some great questions. Uh, but we want to keep firing ours, don't we, Matt? Once we get someone who knows stuff, we say, oh, well, we want to we wanna ask things. Um, obviously, you were saying you don't make uh, specific calls routinely as the tyre engineer, but you will supply the data that they use to make the calls. So, you know, is there ever, any time where you go, oh, you said these tyres would go off, so we got rid of them, uh, but Perez, the greatest tyre manager of all time, was able to go 4,000 laps. On it. He, he used them for the next race. You know, is there any that kind of feedback as well where they said, well, you know, based on your information, we made that call? 
I think with any decision that's made in an F1 team, you have so many elements to it. You know, you have each of the performance engineers, you have each of the race engineers, you've got the tyre engineer, the strategist, you've got all the information coming from the Pirelli tyre engineer. There's a lot of information streams that go into that one call. Now, usually the race engineer makes that call. um, So it's difficult to sort. And I think in F1, it's just when you're during a race weekend, it's happening so fast. You haven't got time to start pinpointing blame or, you know, it's more like, but Do you want to just check your figures a little bit what? rather than this is your fault type? Who dropped their <laughs> microphone? Was that you, Gemma? That's all right. Uh, as Gemma gets her microphone oh, no. back in place, not not even going to edit that out. It's fine. It's a good I, I feature. Don't, I, don't I liked it. I don't think we've ever had anyone like just fully drop the mic before. We get headbutts and mic band. <laughs> I think a mic drop is a good thing, isn't it, Spanners? That's it. She gave us the information uh, where we. she knows we have a culture of blame here at Miss Apex, and she knew I was leading her down that path. So she just went, no, that's not how you do it, because we're nice people. Throw my mic on the floor. So I have a related question. Um, you uh, Spanners mentioned Perez, and Perez does seem to have a real talent at getting tires to last longer than you think they might. Did you ever have to start adjusting things for your drivers either direction simply based on their regular driving habits during a race? Yeah, um, you have to do it in a subtle way because you've never driven an F1 car before. So it's very difficult to tell a driver how to drive an F1 car. Um, But one of the things I found really useful is um, sort of a temperature map. So what I did was I quantified, um, I matched the sector times with the carcass temperature. And I basically said in sector one, when you're at this temperature, you're this much slower and by sector three and using colors and it sounds really patronizing, but you know, the driver has to absorb so much information. If you can go to them and say, right, you were two tenths slower in sector three because you were way too hot in sector one in terms of tire temperatures. And it's having that overview of the whole, how the tires are, you know, behaving throughout the whole circuit. Um, we managed to get the drivers to understand, right, if I go a little bit slower in sector one, you know, by this much, then by sector three, my tires are, are quite good. And I think there's always a limiting axle and there's always a limiting wheel on the car because of the nature of the circuit. So there's always a tire on one of the four corners that's going to really give up um, or degrade really fast. And if you can work with them to manage that um, so that it degrades or slower and therefore lasts a bit longer, then um, then that's probably the key of the tire engineer is <laughs> to work much? with the race engineers and the drivers to do that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How much uh, do they fight you? Because when you've got a driver like Lewis Hamilton, and there's a comment here in the chat that I'll go, uh, Matt W says, some people are saying that Hamilton is still on the radio telling Bono his tyres are dead. Um, you know, is there a lot of pushback from the drivers who are like, well, no, you pay us to drive really, really fast. Sod your tyres or give me better tyres. I think with the more experienced drivers, then definitely. Um, I think was it, it must have been Pascal's first season or second season. Um, you know, our guys were, it was sort of their rookie first or second season in F1. You know, they were probably on their best behaviour because they were under that eye, you know, watch for live Mercedes. Um, so I didn't feel like there was much pushback. And if you can explain to them and say, look, this is the time you lost. They're very receptive to time and tenths of seconds. And I think if you can say, look, stop doing this because this makes you this much slower, then they listen. And then the really ones who are sort of really interested in it say, okay, why help me? What, you know, what can I do type of thing? Um, so yeah, just talk to them in time. It's amazing uh, finding somebody's incentive uh, in in the army. There was a, a tradition of knocking off early on a Friday because it, it is, after all, Poets' Day, and they knew that was the absolute best time to get tasks done around camp because they could say, "Build an entire brick wall around the camp," and as soon as that's done, you guys can go home for the weekend. As soon as you say that, brick wall flies up, everybody shoots out the door. Uh, Matt, we're going to get to some questions from some of our fine patrons. And there is a a bit of a milestone that we've reached here at Missed Apex Podcast. We only survive because we started getting enough Patreon support to to tell us that we could really throw time, energy, money, resources into making this a thing with equipment, convincing our spouses that it was worthwhile doing and that we weren't basically just playing a video game or as my wife calls it, you're going into the shed to play with yourself. She now understands that this is a project that has value and that only happens because a certain amount of you agree and assign a monetary value to that. And Matt, uh, this week, despite everything that's going on, we reached 500 patrons for the first time. That's remarkable. I actually, this is the first I'm hearing of it and I'm just like, I'm overwhelmed, really. It's amazing. 500 people, you know, out of... We, well, in the German review last year, we had 36,000 people tune into our race review. For some reason, the German Grand Prix is always the most listened to, downloaded and watched episode. No idea why. Uh, yeah. So out of those 36,000 people, 500 of you have enjoyed it so much that you have assigned a value to it. Uh, obviously, the money is amazing uh, and it and it helps so much, especially now. Uh, but a lot of it, Matt, is just the fact that these people have said your project is 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 worth me sometimes it's not even the money it's the it's the effort of going to patreon.com 
forward slash missed apex and going through that faff and saying that that is worth it because I want you guys to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's remarkable to me that anybody would do it because there is so much free content out there, but it makes me happy because from the beginning, we have run this project for people who didn't have a place to go, but we're fans. Yeah, people who don't have real life F1 friends, which counts for me. Like I had to have a son and go through all the faff of being a dad just so I'd have someone to watch Grand Prix with. That's the only reason I did it. There's no other reason. Because babies are terrible and you should not have them. And it is not a way to pass the time during this apocalyptic era. Get a really good TV package, Netflix, Skype, get whatever. Put the pretty lady down. It's not worth it. But Matt, the most amazing thing has been that we have only lost two patrons since the Australian Grand Prix was um, was cancelled. So that, that means that people are sticking with us during the off-season. And although the, the rate of new patrons has slowed down... It's still been amazing that people have said, we're listening to your off-season content and we're going to support you. So thank you. And as a thank you, me and Matt produce some patron-only content. It's uh, much more relaxed. It's not highly edited. You know, we we go nuts. We do things like we just knock over our microphones and we just, you know, riff and just talk about our old jobs. Well, it's a bit like this. Okay, uh, but uh, we do that and we also give you an RSS feed as part of that that you can paste into the search bar of your podcast app and that removes the ever-decreasing amount of adverts that we have on our, our programs at the moment, because no one wants to buy podcast adverts. Uh, but you can also join us in our patron forum, uh, where you we, you can hang out with us uh, on chat. We're there all the time. And you'll be the first to know about any events we're doing. One event I want to plug, uh, whilst whilst you're, you're only listening to me because Gemma's going to start talking in a minute, so I'm taking advantage of that. Missed Apex Motorsport on YouTube is where we do our iRacing. We had three races at the weekend in MX5s. I want to say a massive thank you to Steve Amy for putting together that video package. Go and check it out. Missed Apex Motorsport. Go and see what we did at Laguna Seca. It looks and sounds amazing. It looks and sounds every bit as good as the esports offerings that have been on TV. I, I'm saying that. Go and, go and check it out and then tell me I'm an idiot if it's not as good. Our commentators are just as good. Chris Catman-Turner and Chris Stevens were amazing and kept us entertained. And then behind the scenes, we had Sam and Richard who were there just tirelessly working on the registration and setting up sessions. So we're so proud of that that content. It was MX5s, but the next one we're going to do, we're looking at Renaults, Renault 2.0s. I had a go at it and it's so hard, but it is single seaters and it is very on brand, Matt. Just call me Vettel and start laughing now. Yeah, there's a lot of spinning going on. But Bradley Philpott, uh, who of course was a race instructor for a long time, and has set up race school cars, has set up basically uh, an idiot's Renault 2.0 based on my driving ability. So I've been driving around in it, and I've been saying to him, like, oh, I keep snapping at the top of the corkscrew. So he moved the brake bias back. Oh, I keep uh, accelerating out of uh, spinning on the exit of the final turn. So he pulled, like, some of the gear ratios back. So we have a very drivable version of a Renault 2.0. Tell you what, Matt, let's get on with the tech stuff. Before the chat room riots. Look, sorry, we put on like an hour and 20 minutes of content or whatever. I get to say about the stuff, don't I? I get to I get to speak as well, just because I don't know about tyres and stuff. Tell you what, Matt, I'm going to hand the reins over to you. Let's get some of those slack questions to Gemma about her time at Mana F1. And then I'd love to hear some engine chat if you happen to have any to hand. 
Yeah, and I promise we won't talk about uh, the tire situation at all for 2021. It's, it's fine. I've got a whiskey here. Talk about what you want, mate. It's fine. <laughs> all right. Well, first up from Twitter, we have Andrew Cunningham, who asked the following two questions. Uh, does the embedded Pirelli engineer have any role in helping the team understand the scale wind tunnel tires behavior? And going along with that, what metal 3D printed parts are teams running during testing, practice, and races? Okay, and so with the uh, smaller wind tunnel tyres, um, usually they're sent straight from Pirelli to um, the race team. So the trackside Pirelli engineer, which is effectively what I was um, based in the UK, honestly didn't have much to do with uh, the wind tunnel tyres at all. Um, maybe we get a couple of emails um, asking about sort of fitment issues and that kind of stuff. But in terms of the testing program, um, that was all done by the teams and the tyres were sent straight there. So I, I never saw a tyre until I actually saw um, the facilities at Pirelli in Milan. And then the metal 3D printed parts actually was quite um, I had a bit of a geek out over this. So it links quite nicely to um, one of my articles I wrote in an issue of Race Car Engineering magazine a few months ago, all about exhausts. And um, that is probably where, an area where metal 3D printed parts are um, mostly used. Um, the problem with 3D printing, especially metal, you know, they are fantastic for complex geometries and com- complex shapes, but they can't. For fatigue loads and like high high loading, they aren't quite as strong as a machined part. And with the machining technology that F1 teams have now, they normally go for that. Um, so 3D printed parts you can have in sort of the roll hoop. That's 3D printed. You've got um, a couple of fasteners and fixtures and sort of lower level components like that. But with the exhaust system, um, you have sort of parts like the cylinder head flanges. So the metal um flanges they obviously come off the cylinder heads at i think um it's a rectangle rectangular geometry and then i don't know if anyone's seen a picture of a formula one exhaust they're extremely complex and they are so tightly packaged which means that the exhaust pipes coming off the engine are all kinds of crazy geometries to fit into um you know that that rear end engine package and so by 3D printing these exhaust flanges means they can go from a rectangular geometry round a bend into an oval shape and then back to a sort of circular shape so it helps move that exhaust um, through those bends and those geometries whilst minimizing the losses. Um, so that's probably one of the main areas that you see 3D printed parts. Excellent. And now I'm going to ask a follow-up question, and I'm going to use the words additive manufacturing to make myself sound very smart. Um, what advantages does that offer over a traditionally crafted exhaust uh, using additive manufacturing or 3D printing? I think it's predominantly the geometries you can create, also weight, you know, you can create much easier hollower shapes. You know, it's how a 3D printed part is designed is a completely different way. You're not constrained by a machine tool can only do this or that, you know, you've got just, you've just got to design your part in layers and make sure that, you know, you've got sort of structural bits and bobs that can hold it up while it's being manufactured. Um, But apart from that, it's probably weight and the complex complexity of the geometries you can create um and what another sorry another interesting point with the exhausts is that um and they're looking at this now that could be a future technology um is that an exhaust 
I think it's nickel-based alloys, then moves into titanium at the tailpipe. When you're using powder for 3D printed, and like I said, you just imagine that you're adding a layer, a tiny layer, millimeter thick, even less um, of material each time to build up this shape. You can start integrating the powder of another metal. So you can start at the base of the part as one type of metal. And then by gradually incorporating the powder of another metal, you can end up with at the top of the part, another type of metal. So this is very um I don't think this has been fully developed yet, but it's it's the kind of concept that they're looking at going towards because then you can have a part that is essentially one process, but it's two different metals and you get the benefits, the property benefits of both of those. So that's kind of the future of where sort of 3D printing, particularly metal, is going. Okay. So that is genuinely fascinating. And I did not know that. And as someone who is just a general, I enjoy this sort of level of detail. No, I'm assuming that means that managing temperatures and weights will become a much more precise science with the ability to mix metals like that. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of unknowns and maybe that's why they're not quite sure or that's why it hasn't been sort of fully developed yet. Um, but with the temperatures, with heat shieldings and coatings, another thing, you know, you may see um, around the, the primaries coming off the engine, those exhaust pipes, you have this sort of metallic shrouding. Another thing they're looking at is maybe 3D printing that whilst you 3D print the pipe so it can all be as one piece is another thing they're looking at as well. So it's it is the future. Um, but I think the moment you add, you know, you're creating something out of a powder, you have a problem with, you know, the structural integrity of it. So I think that's going to be the restriction. Wow, Matt, Great. I'm uh, totally trusting you that this is like super interesting because I, I really, I, I heard flanges and, and an oval shape. And I just couldn't, I, is this one of those times I'm going to have to rewind and keep listening back until I get it? Yeah, I think it probably is going to be because I'm going to be doing the same thing if I'm being totally honest here. Um, Josh from Twitter would like to know if you could make one change to F1 tires, what would it be? This is a very good question. Um, and I think it matches another question that's been asked about, you know, how, how important tires are to racing. A personal opinion, as much as I love tires and I love the fact that, you know, with every degree of ambient track, tire temperature with every newton of load the tire behaves completely differently i think that's fascinating and that's what gives us great variability i think for a long time in formula one tires have been manipulated and their design the degradation the wear rates all of that kind of behavior has been manipulated to artificially sort of induce in exciting racing and i kind of think if i could make it's difficult to, i've never designed an f1 tire but if you could just make them sort of robust enough so that the drivers could push, they could go flat out. You didn't have to do prep laps. You didn't have to have really expensive tyre blankets. And, you know, you didn't have such a differentiation between the teams at the top who have lots of downforce and the teams at the bottom who have less downforce. All of those kind of things, I think, just make the working windows wider, make them lower, just make them so that everyone can get the tyres up to temperature and the drivers can push and then see kind of, what happens with the racing and i think we just need to go back to that to then start playing with them again maybe question can you increase the window the tire works in without losing the grip that the drivers really enjoy because to my understanding this was a big problem with the new tires they were supposed to uh, approve was that they were more robust but they offered less peak grip 
than the tires the drivers were currently on, and all the drivers complained about it as a result. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult one. And whenever I, when I was thinking about my answer to this question, everything I thought, oh yeah, that'd be good. I was like, oh, actually, you know, this, this, and this then happens as a result. So everything you try and improve, you know, one thing you improve in a tire, it will end up in three other disadvantages. So that's why you know Pirelli have a really tricky job. And regarding a what everyone thinks they do do a good job it's just a really difficult job to do um so what was the question <laughs> is it are there tires where you can have a wide window and maintain the kind of peak grip that the current uh, generation of tires have yeah i think that's that would be better because rather than falling you know off off or into the window you know you've got a very narrow working range that's maybe sort of higher temperature um it's all to do with the compound. You know, you can design a compound so that it works at a lower temperature rather than at a higher temperature. So that's just the compounding thing. You then have the construction and that is where it comes into the sort of structural integrity of the tire. Um, so it, it's balancing those two things that make it really difficult. And that's why, you know, for every compound change, you probably need to do a construction change as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, our very own Nick Numbers Alexander thinks I'm not going to ask any questions from Slack because last time I asked Slack a question, I totally forgot to check it for the answer and just did the work myself. But I did. I looked at all the Slack questions and he would like, he, he actually wants to say he really enjoyed how you explained graining on the last show. And he wanted to know if you had another tire concept like that that we're sort of vaguely aware of, but don't fully understand. So blistering is talked Ooh, about yes. quite a lot. and um you can this is quite evident you can see normally a darker gray sort of strip usually in the center of the tire usually on the rears um so that's another sort of tire behavior or, or characteristic that's talked about a lot that people may not fully understand um so that is very different to graining graining is very much a surface behavior um blistering is where there's hot spots sort of deep in the tread of the tire and they get so hot they basically explode which then ruptures the surface and tears bits off so if you were to compare compare a tire that has grained and a tire that has blistered um the blistering is much deeper because bits of that tire right from its you know inner tread has exploded out and it's basically boiled so it's sort of a speckledy boiled effect um and i think what's interesting about blistering is you get hotter during the center of the tire so that's why you normally see this happening on the center um but also it's the harder compounds that you get more blistering which you probably think well harder compound doesn't get you know softer compounds get a higher temperature than harder compounds but um because you've got less wear you've got more depth of tread Therefore, you're more likely to have hot spots sort of in the lower bits of the tread in the middle that gets hotter. And that's why you get blistering. So you may not get graining, but you might get blistering if you've got a compound that is being overworked um, and is not wearing as much. So there so we are. If I if I've got graining that can come that can come back to me. So that can that can go away. It can smooth itself over. If I've got blistering, I'm, I'm done. So once we've got a blister evolve then that tyre is how much are we talking about a significant performance loss? Well, yes, but then you see Hamilton driving around with blistered tyres quite happily. Well, probably not happily in the cockpit, but he makes it look quite easy. You know, you've got a huge chunk of tyre that's 
been removed from that contact patch. Um, so, you know, you've got, you've basically boiled your tire and it's exploding from the inside out. So recovering from that, it's more of managing it because, you know, even if that degrades, it's more of a strategic advantage than coming in for a pit stop. Um, there's no, yeah, there's no comeback from blistering, I'd say. So that's just kind of a math thing. It's seconds lost per lap versus yeah. seconds lost in a pit stop at that point. Yeah. Okay. Um, along with that, uh, could you talk maybe a little bit about the tire allocation? Um, did you, were you ever personally involved with deciding how many, um, in, this is his technical word, ultra hyper whatever. Is this a slack question? A is, it, is this a slack is question? This is still Nick's question. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's not, he doesn't count as a patron. So we, we should get to some patron questions too. But yeah, well, go on. Oh, you know what? I, I did think, I did have a follow up question about specifically blistering. Um, and it ties into a question from the chat, which is whether or not you think that the Mercedes DAS system will be permitted next year now that the season this year is going to be truncated. I'm pretty sure that it won't be. But as a tire engineer, as a Pirelli engineer, would they have had to let you in on that at any point versus being a team engineer where I'm sure you would have known about it? I don't think so. I mean, I didn't speak to the uh, Mercedes Pirelli tyre engineer, um, but from speaking to Mario Isler, who's head of car racing at Pirelli, he was very much, um, they just sort of check the team. Once they have the tyres, you know, the teams not do what they want. It's all in regulation, but um from a Pirelli point of view, they section those tyres. So after the tyres have been um, used, they go back to the fitting area. The tyre fitters take them off the rims um, and replace them. And um, the sort of compound Pirelli engineer then sort of slices up the bits of rubber and analyses them. And just to see, because that was something new, and from what they were seeing, um, they couldn't see any difference. It's just going to be a, a very minor increment in terms of, carcass tire temperature uh super um i want to shout out to double barge board um who asked a bunch of questions that you already answered when you were talking about nicks and i want to jump ahead to anders who would like to know do you have an opinion on whether or not uh formula one should go back to um sorry that was not the one i wanted to jump to pierre there we go uh, what do you think the next big thing for tires is going to be like hydrogen is seen as a, a potential place for cars to go. Do you see something like that in the future for tires? Or Square are they just tire, a yeah. thing that will always be sort of like this? Square tires. That's that's what's next. Square that's tires. the next big thing. I think in Formula One, you know, it's normally so far ahead of automotive. And if you haven't seen it in Formula One, you know, I, I'm not sure that you know, I definitely think Pirelli, by not having any sort of competition apart from themselves since Bridgestone, you know, they have not got slack, but they have a certain amount of improvement. But I think if you were to introduce a sort of tyre partner or to another tyre competitor, um, costs would skyrocket, but it would be a really interesting engineering battle of the tyre manufacturers. Um, and maybe through that, if the regulations allowed it, you'd be able to see some sort of crazy tyre designs. Um, but in terms of long-term future to be honest I, I haven't got a clue I don't know much about hydrogen tires um so it, it all it's all regulation dependent you know if in 2022 now they were to turn around and say right you know here's a very loose um guidelines for tire design have a well of a time come back with the fastest highest grip tire you can then we'd see some really interesting 
um, technologies. But I think in F1, like we always say, it's just so restricted that they can't. And, and the tyres is another level because it can affect the race so much and they're very much um, restricted. In my head, Gemma, and let, let's set the scene of my F1 viewing experience. I know, I know, I, I look so like young. People are like, you must have just left uni or something. No, turned 40 this year. Started watching F1 in 1997, no, 1987, something like that as a kid. And I remember when Groove Tyres came in. See, I'm thinking of this because of the blistering and that leaves you with a, a kind of a, a, a patch or you know, a, a a bit of the the roundness. Can't think. What's the word for like a ring? A ring of no grip. Um, when the groove tires came in, I remember everyone being very, very happy about that idea because what it did was it effectively made tracks um, less straight because corners suddenly became more challenging. And I always thought that was a good thing. But now, when I ever, whenever I suggest uh, bringing back groove tires, people openly mock me. But I'm like, yeah, but it, it made it it made it harder. So that's good. Uh, but I have this very nostalgic memory of it being good. Am I am I just an idiot? No, <laughs> of course not. Um, to, <laughs> to be Both honest, things could be true. I just need yeah. to throw that out there. Go ahead, Jim. Um, in terms of the groove tires, I mean, I don't know too much, but from my point of view, my experience has always been with you know non groove tires and the moment you take any bit of that contact patch away, which is effectively what you're doing with the groove tire, um, you're reducing grip, you're therefore reducing performance and you're going slower. So I think maybe that's why everyone just wants, you know, get as maximum rubber on the track as you can. But Matt, it's the same as, uh, you know, with the banking at Zandvoort, Dutch people, I said it right, Zandvoort, right? When when you're saying, oh, you've got banking, it's so cool. Oh, no, no, that just makes it straighter. I want banking the other way where you fall off and I want like tires covered in, I want tires that dispense like slippery oil out of them as they're driving. I don't, why is the drive to make it easier? Make it harder. Uh, I think Ivan has his beat. Ivan Notaris in the chat room going with vacuum tires as being an idea uh, along with um, Mark Greenhow going the tires that are made of loads of shoes that are just in a circle. Yeah, someone's, it's banned. That's what I was thinking. A band of ungrip. <laughs> Ungrip isn't a word either. It's late. It's late. And I've had to endure a lot of tire talk here in my defense. Last one. And this is a quickie and an uber geeky question uh, uh, from Muna119, who wants to know who, how, I guess, uh, are tire models built and what mathematics is used? So if you have a quick this equation these people do this with the fancy numbers. Ooh. Great. If not, we'll save it for a show that Spanners is nowhere near because I think he's going to explode. I mean, but I thought there might be a quick answer to that because I know there was one equation you referenced in one of your articles uh, hang about, on, uh, about degradation models. And while, she's thinking, about that, like while that. she's thinking about that, we have to say that the articles you're referring to are in the publication Race Car Engineering. You can follow them on Twitter at Race Car Engineer. And actually, uh, Gemma has uh, sorted out some kind of promotion for for listeners of Missed Apex podcast. So while you're thinking of that maths equation that Matt thought was worthy of an interesting question, perhaps you could tell our readers uh, how they could take advantage of of this. 
So on our site, we've got lots of promotional offers at the moment. Um, there's a big yellow banner that pops up when you go to racecarengineering.com. Um, there is also a special link um, where you can get a discounted rate of our subscriptions. So um, I have to put that in the show notes, presumably. Yes. Please. And I will put it in the site post. So you'll be able to see it on our Twitter, Facebook and on in your podcast player. There should be a link there as well. And what will what will happen if we click that link? So it will pop up with a sort of checkout page and it will give you lots of options, you know, whether you want to pay by direct debit, if you want to do three issues, if you want to do a subscription, print, digital, um, whatever you want, basically. And all of them, uh, it's discounted, but I can't remember by how much, <laughs> I'm afraid. But this is the kind of place where you're going to get the kind of in-depth geeky stuff that Matt is asking you about without somebody here uh, distracting you. Uh, so look out for that link. Uh, takes you to Race Car Engineering Magazine and enjoy what they have on offer. And because we, we've been talking about that, we've completely forgotten. We've all forgotten what Matt's question was, and we can move on. Whew, that was a that was a close one. Uh, Gemma, uh, staying on tech, I have to ask you about some of the engine stuff. Uh, you were actually going to talk about it on the last show, but it's um, conversations with some very highly respected engineers. Uh, about uh, you know previous engine technologies yeah at um at testing this year i was lucky to get an interview with um andy cow so uh, managing director of mercedes hpp high performance powertrains he's basically the guy who's led the development of the mercedes engines for many years and yeah, I just think the most interesting technical story that's come out of this era of formula one is that these engines, these power units that we're so familiar with, um, they're the most efficient engines in the world. They're achieving thermal efficiencies of 50%, well over 50%. Um, Sorry, got to stop you. What's thermal efficiency? Okay, so thermal efficiency is the heat released by the combustion, so by burning at the air and the fuel. Um, what percentage of that heat is usually converted or is converted into useful mechanical work at the wheels? Now, normally at uni, you're taught that a third of that energy from combustion is useful. A third goes down the tailpipe of the exhaust as heat. And the other third is sort of dissipated as heat within the engine um, as well. And in the V8 era, they were achieving thermal efficiencies of 29%. So, um, and Andy was saying that um, even in 2014 in Melbourne, the first round, they were hitting thermal efficiencies of about 40%. Now they're over 50. And when you include the contribution of the hybrid systems, you're looking at 55%. So, you know, it's just an amazing engineering achievement that sort of people don't really know or understand. Wait, 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 wait a minute. When you mean 50% efficiency, that's just for the internal combustion engine. That doesn't include the MGUK or the MGUH. Correct. Yeah. Jaw floor. It's That's, amazing. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. Um, and I was going to say, as far as mechanical work goes, I think in terms of my own marriage, that for me means mainly things on high shelves and bugs. What about you, Spanners? What I, I do you know me? I I like to focus in on the F one chat, not get distracted talking about my family and my terrible flawed relationship that will ultimately damage us both. Uh, but in the chat room, uh, a Ambrose Shepherd. Hi Ambrose. Sorry, you can join our live chat room. By the way, go to YouTube, search for Mr Apex Podcast. When we say chat room, these are real people chatting with us 
live. Uh, Ambrose is saying, and as noise as well. Of course, one of the biggest things that happened when the hybrid engines came out was everyone started whinging about, where's my, where's my screaming V10s? And it's like, well, no, we're just better now. Noise is a, is a fail condition. It's wasted energy which isn't being used to go faster. That's what noise is. So, so. <laughs> you, can like, you can have noise or high performance. So I, I do think that people are a little bit lost when they talk about wanting to be deafened as they go, as they go around a track. Uh, but I know for a lot of people, I think it's n- nostalgia maybe. And had they always grown up in this era without the noise, maybe they wouldn't have missed it as much. Well, I think if you never experienced it, you're not going to miss it. And I, I think there are some people who have a visceral and passionate reaction because when you're that close to something that loud, I can tell you from personal experience, it's more than just a sound. You can feel it through your entire body. And I think people do react positively to that, oh. but you're also not wrong. It is it is incredibly inefficient when something is that loud. Eurofighter jet pilots are gits and they very much enjoy uh, going over a military base when there's a lot of personnel around and then pointing as up as they possibly can and igniting their, I don't know what they're called, afterburners or whatever, and literally seeing grown men cuddle up on the floor, clutching their ears, going, make it stop, make it stop. So it's not a good thing. Uh, anyway, so your your conversation with who? Who were you talking to again? Remind me. Andy Andy Cowell. Andy Cowell. Um, j- just talking about the efficiency, obviously that's fantastic, but some of the controversy around those engines is, why why are we driving for efficiency? Who who cares about that? We're going for out and out pure performance. But I mean, really, the performance of these engines, they're still producing incredibly high horsepower. Yeah. And there's been, I think, I don't think any teams confirmed it yet, but they are well over the thousand brake horsepower, um, you know, barrier. Um, but it's it's all because this kind of technologies that are being developed and evolved in Formula One can filter down to automotive and in you know the resource restricted world that we're currently in, um, you need to maximize the energy out of your resources. And that's where this whole drive for efficiency, that was the whole point of these 2014 power unit regulations. You know, get as much energy out of every droplet of fuel as you can and that's essentially why they put in the 100 kilogram per hour fuel flow rate um, and that's what's driven this drive for efficiency i guess the concern is as we as we go forward uh, you know at the moment we're getting the most we can out of a certain amount of dead dinosaur juice uh, and then we're trying to preserve as much of that energy and we're going to claim it back with regen and stuff but if we ever move away from fossil fuels you know, is, is all this technology going to get lost or, or are they really kind of leaning on the, the electrical side, uh, where, presumably when battery technology eventually catches up? Or, or is, is, is everything that we're working towards now going to drop off a cliff suddenly? I think from speaking to a lot of F1, um, you know, sort of experts up and down the pit lane, the powertrain experts, you know, Internal combustion engines, despite what you maybe read or think, they're not going anywhere. And they're not going anywhere for the next 50 years, maybe. So that technology is going to be absolutely vital um, for all of the manufacturers to meet their targets in in automotive. Um, And then if you look at all the electric machines, the regen, all of that kind of stuff, that's taking that's a way of conserving energy and then redeploying it elsewhere. That's going to be again essential no matter what is 
moving the car if you can reclaim some of that wasted energy so you know the mg uk for example um i think that's going to be around again for a long time regardless of what's actually what fuel is in the engine well you would essentially you have even even in formula e you have what amounts to an mg uk working to recover energy from both front and rear axle to recharge the battery and there you're limited uh oftentimes just by the thermal properties of the battery itself in terms of how much re- regeneration you can get and obviously in a real world driving situation by the lack of corners you would have on say like uh, a long distance road like we have highways here that just go straight forever you don't get much regen on that um am i right in thinking this is kind of like the fuel economy paradox where if you have a 15 mile per gallon car cuz that's we use freedom units over here um, and move to a 20 mile per gallon car, that's fantastic. But going from 20 to 30 doesn't make that much difference if you're only driving, let's say, 2,000 or 3,000 miles a year. Is this kind of what we're looking at with the internal combustion engine? If we can get it to a certain efficiency, then we will reduce, uh, make a major impact on the amount of greenhouse gas that is being currently generated by fossil fuels. Yeah. And I think in this world we're in everything, every amount you can save matters. Um, And the amazing technologies that are within that combustion chamber, the science of how those high pressure injectors are spraying that fuel and all of that knowledge, you know, that can be carried over, whether you're putting hydrogen fuel in it or, or more renewable fuel you still need it to burn effectively. And I do think that, you know, that combustion, the internal combustion engine, regardless of what type of fuel you're putting into it, I just think it's going to be around for a long time because electric, it's not catching up as fast as it should. Yeah. uh, Well, there's a lot of challenges with electrics, uh, infrastructure, supply issues with batteries. But I'm going to ask you a question. We know that the goal here is to get north of 60% efficiency. And I have done, and I'm not going to lie, a tremendous amount of looking at things online. But but you're an expert of then. The, That's all right. Of, of the things that you have seen Formula One talking about, is there any that you think is going to be the most direct, or as I like to call it, the lowest hanging fruit? Or do you even think we can really get to 60% efficiency? Is that just a goal that we're never really going to reach? I think, so that's a goal that sort of Pat Simmons has set himself or or said that he set himself. And I think it's ambitious, you know. Um, um, But I think it's fantastic that they, you know, first of all, F1 under this new management, they have engineers solely dedicated to writing these regulations. So I think that's firstly a really important point. You have engineers trying to solve these problems and solve them in a way that they're, you know, the other engineers are going to be able not to compete against because they're writing the regulations. So never before has there been such an um, engineering at the focus of sort of the future regulations. And these sort of research groups that are going on as part of FOM or Formula One, um, they're looking at all of these things. So there's engineers looking at as many options as possible. Um, you know, they're looking at a huge long list of technologies. And I think so that's, so I'm feeling co- confident that whatever they come up with, hopefully there's been a lot of time in research. In terms of the right answer, I think it's going to be a combination of several of the technologies. And I think the sort of lowest hanging fruit really is probably the fuels. So the renewable fuels, um, 
because they can happen now. You can plug a fuel into a combustion engine now. You know, we don't need a whole infrastructure. There's cars doing it. There's race cars doing it. And from speaking to the likes of Pat Simmons and other engine experts, you know, they, they that could happen now for very little change. The issue and the reason why they didn't bring it into the 2021 regs and now 2022 was more of a supply issue. Um, so, yeah, I think the fuels, getting a more sort of carbon neutral renewable fuel that utilizes all that combustion technology, you still get the hybrid and um, and you can, you know, you're reducing your emissions and it's being more sustainable. Okay. I have one follow-up question. Um, I did some research originally when they started talking about e-benzene, which is the fully recaptured carbon from the atmosphere fuel that I know Audi has done some samples of and they make a diesel. They made a whole factory to make diesel now. Um, it, but in the more recent information I've seen, they're talking more and more about tailored fuels and stuff like that. So is the idea of a complete synthetic fuel, synthetic gasoline, now gone? Are they looking really more at the biofuel thing? Or is that still there as a more long-term objective? I'm not sure, to be honest. But from what from what they've said to me, it's looking at the carbon neutral stuff, you know. But then obviously, so, you know, they're taking that carbon from the atmosphere, they're using it, and then they're putting it back. So they're not adding to it. That's why it's neutral. But um, you still that conversion process takes energy. So how do you power that conversion process? Is that needs to be through renewable resources as well? So again, it's the same with batteries. You know, um, yeah, great, they're low emissions, but you still have to use a lot of energy and resources to make that low emission uh, product. So yeah, it's. Sorry, Matt, you've had your follow up. That if if I was the White House, you know, press correspondent, I'd be like, no, sir, you have had your follow up. Oh, I had the best segue for you, though. Oh, okay, go on then. Let's pretend that didn't happen. Go on, do the segue. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, well, it turns out, as much as I have nine billion more questions for you about all of these things that we've learned about, I kind of might have gotten a little distracted with the tire talk. Completely on me. So maybe we could save some of this. For another show in the future? I mean, I know there's a lot of other Formula One news that must be coming out. Well, I mean, we have got a very packed schedule coming up. We have uh, we have Matthew Carter of Canada and of ex-Lotus F1 team joining us next week. So we've got that. So we're pretty busy then, Matt. So we couldn't do it then. Uh, the Sunday afterwards, we're talking, you know, a roundup of the F1 news. But we're also talking about what it's like to be a, a motorsport journalist from from the bottom of the ladder all the way to near the top. So, you know, I don't know when we're going to squeeze it in, Matt. I, I don't think this apocalypse is going to last that long. But okay, fine. I tell you what, why don't I invite Gemma to come and join us again? Let's em- embarrass you live on the broadcast, Gemma. Would you come back and join us and talk some more tech? Yes. And you can be followed on Twitter uh, by going to Gem. Uh, underscore tech not the underscore thing again well i just can't have a go at me two times running did i did i already have a go at you i in my head i was like i was polite about it last time so i'll mention it this time uh but apparently i wasn't polite about it last time uh you could just change it because it's terrible having an every single time you can't just say there goes our audience what are you thinking you can't just say i'm at gem tech you have to say i'm at gem underscore tech i i would start typing the word underscore because I am not tech savvy. Gemma, that's what you're doing. You're being ageist by having that. I'm sorry. 
but we've seen, but at gem underscore tech and of course the publication that you pour so much of your heart and soul into at race car engineer click the notes uh in the show notes click the link uh to racecarengineering.com yes i got it right i've got a nod nod there uh, and you can find out the the promos they're doing in fact uh gemma uh, a lot of news sources, a lot of news outlets focus so much on current events, whereas you guys at Race Car Engineer, you're in a, a somewhat unique position in that you're not really that time sensitive for your information and articles. Yeah, exactly. And I could fill five magazines a month with article ideas about tech and engineering. And I'm hoping that there's a lot of engineers sitting at home um, working, but a little less busy than they would be in a normal season. So I'm hoping to give them a call and get lots of really cool information. So it might be content wise, the best for us. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, we do sometimes uh, get that feeling in the off season where we go, Oh man, you know, we've got so much content. Oh, there's races. So we'll have to shelve that. <laughs> so we, we're bringing up now a lot of the stuff that we wanted to do in the off season and didn't get a chance to do. Uh, and Matt, you and I are spending a bit more time together three days a week. We're doing our new live stream and podcast called Remain Indoors. It's just, it's good advice. And frankly, it was always kind of my life philosophy. Don't go outside unless absolutely necessary. Uh, I like having friends that I see occasionally, but then communicate with a lot online. So it's kind of perfect for me. And we think the thing is, we spend so much of our time making our indoors as good as possible. We spend most of our money on indoor things. TV, projectors, gaming systems, a really, really nice sofa, a corner sofa, because we're fancy. Um, So the Remain Indoors podcast is, you know, a a lighter look at the news at the moment and kind of just a place for us to to vent, complain, moan, let people uh, come on and have a bit of a grumble about the fact that stuff's a bit odd right now. Yeah, it's actually been a really positive thing to help sort of just structure and organize the time because yeah you know suddenly i have no job at all but (laughs) yes you know and 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 neither does the wife so it's giving me an excuse to come hide my office all day although i got called on the carpet about that if i'm being honest oh dear oh dear well you can you can tell me that in detail on episode five of remain indoors we've been having a great time so far it might get terrible but so far i think people are enjoying it make it appointment viewing for you on a monday tuesday or thursday 2 p.m. Uh, UK time, which is now BST. So that's UTC plus one. Come and join us in the live stream or subscribe. Uh, if you want more details, I believe we've launched a page on the Missed Apex site. Thank you, Felix. MissedApexpodcast.com forward slash remain indoors. Follow Matt at MattPT55 on Twitter. Follow me. I'm the best one at Spanners Ready and the show at Missed Apex F1. We've got all Facebook groups and YouTube and Instagram and stuff like that. So follow us on all that stuff. I am going to give every member of the Missed Apex crew the password to the Instagram account. And I'm asking them to take pictures of their lives and activities. So if you're interested, go and find Missed Apex podcast uh, on, uh, on Instagram. And if you follow Matt, there he just posts pictures of trumpets that's all that that's all he uses facebook form isn't it right matt yeah nothing but trumpets and cats trumpets and cats good well loads planned for you here loads planned coming out of the shed so we might see you at some point here on the internet but wherever we see you next 
be brave, because wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. Missed Apex. I said it wrong. Oh, no. I hesitated. Missed Apex. You missed a pack. Well, because I was going to say it was like tech time-ish instead of tech time, and then I just stopped talking halfway through a word. Who does that? It's a good job this isn't my profession, talking for a living. Otherwise, I'd be bang out of luck. It would be the longest apocalypse ever. Stop calling it an apocalypse. I have got through two radio shows since the apocalypse started without referring to it as the apocalypse, because I am assured that that is very much frowned upon, and I need to stop doing it. Oh, no. Oh, I've just seen it pop up in the chat, Matt. I've just seen it. <sighs> I haven't even. I just saw it. Like, I, I think I've got the winner right here just popped up. Okay, Matt, who is the winner of? Best do it quick. Run it. Run ages. This is meant to be the off-season, fake off-season with no content. It's an hour and a half we've gone. Who's the I winner? I told you we had, like, easily two full shows, and what? we didn't even get to the second half of the show barely at all. Matt, we're all in trouble with our partners. Just tell us who's won. Comment of the week. Um, I have three for you. I hammer spanners as race engineer. If you talk like that again, I'll give you a 10 minute timeout racer, but we're racing spanners. That's it. 10 minutes. That is that, my exact parent style. I was just describing to Thunderbeast Barnard. That's what I do with my kids. Timeout. Uh, go to, we have the naughty corner. Go to the naughty corner. But, but, but right. Fine. Two minutes in the naughty corner now. That's right. That's what I do. Mark Greenhow. I thought the future was garlic bread, but I'm now convinced it's additive manufacturing. Okay. Ooh, all right. And finally, I think Tony P might have to be the winner. I get Race Car Engineer Magazine just for the crossword, 14 across, gurney flap. Okay, who's the winner, Matt? I think it's going to have to be uh, based on Gemma's reaction solely. Mark Greenhow, how about, introduce, uh, how about uh, I thought the future was garlic bread, but I'm now convinced it's additive manufacturing. Comment of the week. Stay safe. Stay sane. Remain indoors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.